LA Police Chief Earl Paysinger is dead. And who cares? You care, I promise. Welcome to the show. Hi, I'm Richard Bond, and I am the producer and director of the Tupac Assassination movies. Over the last 12 years, I have learned a lot about Tupac, and I'd like to share with you what I know. Former First Assistant Chief Earl Pacinger died Monday, surrounded by friends and family, according to the Los Angeles Police Department and CBS LA, who reported the incident. In a Monday night statement, the LAPD said the announcement was made with great sadness. For more than 43 years, Earl Pacinger dedicated his life to making Los Angeles the safest big city in America with his laser-focused mission to reduce violence and victimization. But he will be mostly remembered by Angelinos for his ability to foster public trust. Community policing was in his DNA and as he championed youth programs, meaningful community engagement, and greater police accountability. Pacinger was particularly proud to be the architect of the Youth First campaign, which provided mentorship resources and opportunities to more than 10,000 youth in our city. He also revamped the LAPD cadet leadership program that promised education, leadership, self-esteem, and a sense of well-being for the youth in our communities. Under his direction, the cadet program grew from over 500 candidates in the early 2000s to nearly 1,500 today. Pacinger retired from the LAPD in 2016 after 41 years of service and joined the University of Southern California in the role of Vice President of Civic Engagement. All right, so that is the blurb, Earl Pacinger is dead, and you may say, who cares? And you could say that, it's okay. I kind of did it first, but for some reason that name rang a bell to me and buzzed around, and I had to think about, as the show is, what I know. And here's what I know about Earl Pacinger. Earl Pacinger was a member of the Los Angeles Police Department that sat on what's called the LAPD Board of Rights. And the Board of Rights is a court within the LAPD, considered an administrative court. This administrative court allows an LAPD officer who is indicted by internal affairs or who would be charged with a crime by the LAPD while under color of his being a cop. And this person is taken in front of the Board of Rights. He appears with his union representative, and he is asked questions, and basically it's like a trial, but he has his union rep there to represent him and make sure that his union rights aren't being trampled by the board. Now, the board allows for witnesses to be presented both by the LAPD, who is prosecuting a case against the officer, and the officer itself. So the officer can provide witnesses that will help clear his name, and the LAPD provides witnesses that will help bolster their story or help gain credibility to the charges that are being filed against the person. Now, the particular case I'm referring to, and again, if this were a record, we're talking a deep cut here, kids. So hang tight. This is going to get a little bit name intensive and name focused, but I think it's important because it adds to the landscape of what happened with the Wallace killings. And the investigation. So to fully understand exactly what the whole situation is regarding this Earl Pacinger fella, we have to look at an officer by the name of Rafael Perez. And everybody knows who Rafael Perez is. Rafael Perez was a corrupt Los Angeles police officer who ran in the narcotics division back in the 90s. Uh, he was arrested and charged with numerous crimes, and as part of his 
plea dealing with the LAPD, gave up names of dozens of officers in the LAPD uh, within the Rampart Division of the LAPD that was later known as the Rampart Scandal. Perez said that many, many officers were involved with him in drug dealing, money laundering, witness intimidation, you name it. The, the allegations went on and on, and Rafael Perez spun many, many tales of people's involvement. Now, Rafael Perez said all of these things. Rafael Perez also said many other things to his inmate roommate when he was incarcerated, and his cellmate at the time was a man by the name of Kenneth Bogney. And we've talked about Kenneth Bogney a little bit in the past, uh, but we're going to play a clip from Battle for Compton to try to lay out who Bogney is, how he fits into the Rafael Perez, David Mack, and give you a little bit of a primer on that. And then we'll come back afterwards and we'll talk about what Earl Pacinger had to say in the LAPD and why it is important. Now, I have to warn you that Battle for Compton was a video, and we don't show the video here, but we have a lot of people talking in these clips, and so i kind of run it down for you. Some of the people you'll be hearing from, and you'll probably be able to pick their voices out pretty clearly, would be Randall Sullivan, who wrote the book Dead Wrong, also wrote the book Labyrinth. We have Gene Deal. We have Greg Kading. We have... Uh, Ken Bogany, and you'll know Ken Bogany because he is the one who was talking on the telephone. Um, we do have Randall Sullivan providing the majority of the narrative. There's a little bit about Greg Kading in there. Uh, we do have a clip towards the end where it is former LAPD detective Frank Liga talking about, I wish there had been more of them in the truck when he shot Kevin Gaines. Uh, you will hear me in there as well, but you recognize my voice by now. So uh, again, there are other things to add, and I would encourage you, if you like what you heard, to go back and watch Battle for Compton. There's so much information in there. Uh, please do. Please watch it. Um, that's not a shameless plug. That's actually, there's just half the information I can't tell you because we're showing it while we're talking about it. But this is still a great primer. Check it out. In a missed move, the Los Angeles Police Department allowed a rogue felon ex-cop to tell a cellmate the details of how the Wallace killing actually went down. The LAPD tried to hide this inmate's testimony because they had used the same informant's alleged credibility to exonerate at least five LAPD officers, and they knew he was not just another jailhouse informant. What you're about to hear was worth $1.1 million to the LAPD to hide from the Wallace family. That's what the judge fined the city for not letting this go out to the public. This is what they did not want you to hear, served up by the very witness whose testimony cleared five cops. Now, I'm going to jump in here for a quick second, fans, and I'm sorry for doing this because I didn't want to bust the flow of the narrative. But I think it's important to understand before we get too deep into this that when we talk about the border rights hearings, we already explained what that is. And that we're talking about Ken Bogany and his testimony he was brought as a witness in front of this Board of Rights hearing by the LAPD five times. Five of the officers that were charged under Rafael Perez's allegations that they did something wrong, the LAPD used Ken Bogney to be their star witness to get these guys indicted as proof that Rafael Perez had said these things about their activity. So let's pick it back up. My name is Kenneth Bogney. 
And uh, I was in Linwood County Regional Facility from November 1999 to July 2000. There I befriended uh, Rafael Perez, the uh, LAPD officer who was in the center, center of the ramparts scandal. And, and then I could see the motive was patently obvious. He'd done things that were hanging over him. He could have gone to prison for the rest of his life. He could make a deal to get out from under that. Uh, and But then he could also get revenge on every, anybody who had ever offended him in any way. Rafael Perez never mentioned it. Night in May, he just had Dave Kenner and Reggie Wright uh, told him that Mac they were the finding guy to get the hit down. So it was a million dollars for, for Puffy and Notorious B.I.G. I cheated on my employer, and I cheated on all of you, the people of Los Angeles. From what I was told, he gave almost 250 grand, you know, up front, and they owed him 750 grand on the back end. They completely hidden Boagni. Right. From, so clearly the LAPD took it, at least that seriously, that they would hide all mention of Boagni. The real break in the case uh, was the arrest of uh, David Mack for a uh, bank robbery out in Los Angeles. David Mack was an LAPD officer. He was arrested for one of the biggest bank robberies in LA history, which he was caught on film committing. It's been said publicly that David Mack was actually the introduction of the concept that LAPD cops were working for death row records and were working for Suge Knight. And that's not true, because long before David Mack ever robbed that bank, Ken Knox had logs that clearly spelled out who was working for death row records. And those logs were published to Los Angeles Police Department's Internal Affairs in June of 1996, even before the Shakur shooting took place. And they did a search warrant on his house for the bank robbery. Uh, he owned a black SS Impala, and that's the same vehicle that was used in the killing of Biggie Smalls. There's a number of clues uh, that connect uh, David Mack possibly to the killing. Perez was just long for the ride at the time, going to uh, death row meetings with Reggie White. Uh, he was pretty much Mack's sidekick at, at this time. Uh, they went and got a mirror to get the job done. And Mack had already knew a mirror from the next, from being from the uh, Nation of Islam, and they went to school together. He was already in the staff. So Amir Muhammad comes into the story. Russ Poole sees that he's had one visitor, and he identifies who this person is, but he gave, but he basically was trying to cover up who he was. Well, that's suspicious, obviously. And and then he gets looks at the driver's license and sees that the picture looks a lot like the composite drawing that was made of Biggie Shooter. LA Police Detective Greg Kading came out and said that the reason that Amir Muhammad put a fake social security number on the inmate visitor application when he went to visit David Mack was because he did not want his identity stolen. His explanation was that he was aware that inmates and other people would be able to view or access that log and he didn't want his identity stolen. This hardly sounds like a professional killer. And he bought that as a culpable explanation. Well, the fact of the matter is, if you're putting your true date of birth and your true address and your true name on the application, you have more chances of identity theft than just a social security number. If you're really that concerned about your identity being stolen, you should use a fake date of birth. You should use a fake address. But he didn't. He used true information, and the only thing that he embellished was his social security number. And you'd ask your question, why? 
Well, it's really simple. The social security number is the only thing that's not with you when you get your ID checked. Amir Mohammed in Orange County under yet another one of his assumed identities, this time he changed himself physically, he had a shaved head now. Didn't look like the Muslim with the fade haircut anymore. He had a shaved head and a beard. Uh, but anyway, he, he had been arrested for menacing a couple. Uh, he was in an SUV, menacing a couple in an SUV with a gun. You know, he pulled out a gun, they pulled up alongside, pointed the gun at him, threatened them. Uh, the woman was somebody he'd been involved with, so it wasn't like this wasn't a hit per se, but uh, uh, they called the cops. They pulled him over, he had, you know, he had fake driver's license, he had many aliases. He had, his real name was Harry Billups. He never really, I don't think, legally changed it. I think he still is legally Harry Billups, but he called himself Harry Muhammad, uh, Amir Muhammad convicted in that case, but it was he was convicted on, a, I think that was a misdemeanor. Initially it was a felony, they pleaded it down, and he, but a lot of the reason that he got off was that the couple, who were the only witnesses, a week later were found shot to death. It was ruled by the coroner a murder-suicide. The whole thing seemed dubious to me. You know, I, if I'd, this happened well after I wrote Labyrinth and I found out about this. So I, you know, I didn't follow it all the way. Somebody should. I told you that this cat was coming to kill us or try to get at us that night. I told you I had intel. The night uh, that Notorious was killed, uh, LAPD officer uh, James supposed to cut out both, uh, both cars, both, uh, where, Biggie was in the car, and our son, PBB, uh, was in the car. So James was supposed to cut both of them guys off. I told our driver, Kenny, Kenny, run this next three lights. Run the light, Kenny. Kenny ran the light, Big stopped at the light. Big get killed. Wasn't meant for him, bruh. The whole job didn't get done. One of the guys got away. Uh, of course, uh, Sean Combs got away. He also told me later on that he found out that uh, James was working with internal affairs. He couldn't tell internal affairs about that, but he was informing them on a lot of other stuff. So what exactly was Kevin Gaines doing out on that special assignment in Las Vegas? Perez said that was the reason he was killed. No, it wasn't an accident. He goes, do you have any regrets? I says, yeah. And he leans forward again. He goes, you regret shooting him? I says, no, I regret that he's alone in the truck at the time. Alone in the truck at the time, I could have killed a whole truckload of them. And would have been happily doing it, doing so. Uh, Derwin and his and his buddy Kevin Gaines are best friends and running partners. That's how Derwin Gaines, that's how Gaines knew who I was, basically. I gained Derwin Henderson was a probationer of mine. And I'd seen them one night in Hollywood. And remember, I had long hair driving a fucking Buick Regal. And I'd seen Henderson in traffic, and we stopped no space. I was going south, he was going north. He had another male black in a car with him, but I didn't pay attention to that guy. I was talking to Derwin. We were partners, and we were saying hi to him and talking to him. Turns out Gaines was with him. They were running partners. That's how Gaines knew me. Reggie Wright and Dave Kenner informed Max Perez that they weren't going to pay for the whole contract, and therefore they had to do a bank, and they had to do the bank robbery to get the money to pay Amir, because Amir was real upset about it. So he wasn't, he wasn't taking no uh, for an answer. You know, he wanted his money, and the only recourse was for uh, Dave Mack and Raphael Perez, along with Sammy Martin, to do this bank robbery and get the money to pay Amir, which is the reason why the money wasn't recovered. 
Have you had any conversations with Perez at all, either over the phone or in person? No. No conversations about what, what's going on? No. Uh, how about with uh, uh, Sammy Martin? Have you had discussions with Sam Martin over the phone? or? No. If the guy has all these girlfriends or whatever, I mean, I wouldn't want that being in the paper on me, you know, so whether that's true or not, I don't see how that but takes what's, that what's your feeling about him having a girlfriend that's a dope dealer? Well, I think, obviously, if that's true, that's, you know, there's a problem with that. Okay, what's your feeling about him stealing three kilos of cocaine out of the streets and sustenance or out of the property? Right from the get-go, detectives believed somehow death row records was involved. Phil Carson was committed to this case. I mean, he had made a case. I mean, he was ready to make arrests. He was convinced that Mac and Muhammad and other LAPD officers had been involved in setting up Biggie's murder. He, I mean, he was all the way in on it. He was ready to file, but his superiors, you know, basically blocked him and eventually took him off it. Well, just like Kenneth Knox, you know, they, he, he was right there, ready to make a case. He was told no. So Carson, basically just like Knox to save his career, uh, backed off. Okay, so you say, wow, that was really deep and there's a lot of information there. And um, okay, so so what? What does that mean? Well, we know what Ken Bogarty had to say. Now, let's get back to Earl Pacinger and why we were even talking about him in the first place. Now, when the Wallace family went and did a deposition in Earl Pacinger, there was something very important that they were trying to bring out in this Wallace case. And that was that the LAPD was not doing anything about it. We'll get to Phil Carson in a minute, so hang tight on that. But the emphasis of the reason that the Wallace family wanted to talk to Earl Pacinger was because Earl Pacinger sat on that board of rights in the case of an officer by the name of Paul Byrne. You won't know that name, and that name has nothing to do with Biggie and or Tupac. But it is a name of an officer, one of the many, that Rafael Perez, as you've learned, asked to have indicted as a co-defendant with him for crimes that Rafael Perez said that he did. So basically, he's dragging Paul Byrne into it, saying that, yes, I'm dirty, but these other guys were dirty as well. And he puts them out like that. And so the Board of Rights took Paul Byrne to a Board of Rights hearing with the charges that he somehow conspired with Rafael Perez to commit certain crimes. Now, how did the LAPD try to verify what Rafael Perez said? Did they provide a witness? Yes, they did. And that witness was, drumroll please, Ken Bogany. This was one of the five cases that he was brought in front of the Board of Rights as a witness for the LAPD to testify about things that Rafael Perez allegedly told him. Now, why was it of interest? Well, it, very interestingly, not only did Ken Bogany, in the case of Paul Byrne, in his Board of Rights hearing, talk about what Rafael Perez had to say about Paul Byrne, but Ken Bogany also said that Rafael Perez had a couple of other things that he wanted to get off his chest to Ken Bogany. And in the middle of his testimony, Ken Bogany let loose the fact that Rafael Perez had alleged that David Mack and Rafael Perez were involved with the murder of Biggie Smalls. And that was important. Was it part of the Paul Byrne case? No. But it was information that was given in that Board of Rights hearing. Now, the reason that the Wallace family was talking to Earl Pacinger about it was because 
let's say you're in a board of rights hearing, let's say you're in a any kind of court case or police investigation, and while you're over here talking about Joe Blow and whatever Joe Blow did, a witness suddenly confesses to the fact that they killed the president of the United States or that they shot Kennedy or they confessed to something else. When a police officer hears that information, and this is all LAPD, everybody on the board is LAPD, everybody who's prosecuting is LAPD, the union reps may or may not be LAPD, but everybody there, you've got 20 people there, they're all cops and investigators. And in the middle of a case that has nothing to do with the other case, one of the witnesses drops a potential bombshell that says that David Mack, a disgraced LAPD officer who was already being indicted for the bank robbery by that time, and Rafael Perez, who was also being indicted for many different counts of malfeasances and drug dealing and evidence planting and everything else he was charged with, drops in there that, oh, coincidentally, they were also involved in the murder of Biggie Smalls. The Wallace estate asked Pacinger directly this question. If you found that information out and he was giving you that information, do you have an obligation under the law or should you ethically pass that information on to the detectives at the LAPD and ask them to follow up on this potential new lead? Again, Paul Byrne had nothing to do with the Biggie Smalls killing, but in the midst of Ken Bogany's testimony, Ken Bogany also cut loose with the fact that Rafael Perez had allegedly admitted to him that he and David Mack were involved in the killing of Biggie Smalls. So the question became, did the LAPD know about this allegation? They heard the allegation. We know that they heard the allegation. Pacinger heard the allegation. And what the Wallace family wanted to know from him was, what did you do with it when you heard it? The answer to that question from Earl Pacinger was probably nothing. Yeah, so that's really what this is about. It's about the fact that the LAPD... Again, heard credible testimony. Now, they asked Earl Pacinger whether or not he thought that, or why he didn't pass that information on. And he said because he didn't think that Ken Bogany was a credible witness. Well, wait a minute. The LAPD used Ken Bogany five different times to clear all these officers, and every single time they vouched for his credibility. You don't bring a non-credible witness out there to try to build your case against a cop and his union representative unless you truly believe that witness is credible and that that witness is going to help you prosecute your case. Yet, we find that, well, credible witness for this guy, credible witness for this guy, credible witness for this guy. He talks about Biggie Smalls. Why didn't you forward the Biggie Smalls information? Oh, because we didn't think he was credible. Really? Okay, well, this is just some of the same nonsense that we've heard from the LAPD. And that was what the Wallace family wanted to talk to Earl Pacinger about. Of course, it was probably five years later when they filed the lawsuit and the deposition happened. So Earl Pacinger, you know, had memory problems. He didn't recall things directly. He did recall Ken Bogany being there. Uh, didn't remember exactly what he said, even when the information was put right in front of him. You know, you got the typical, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But the point of the deposition was that the LAPD knew that new information had been given to them by a witness in another case. This is for the Paul Burns case. Bogany was a witness to that, who also alleged that there was activity by David Mack and Rafael Perez, two well-known LAPD 
bad guys, if you will, at the time, that may have been involved in a murder scenario or a murder conspiracy. So what did they do about it? Nothing. And again, this goes back to Phil Carson's frustrations with David Mack, with the LAPD, with his inability to be able to move the case forward. And what did Phil Carson have to say about that? Well, I'm glad you asked because here's what Phil Carson had to say about the whole David Mack thing. One of the interesting things was, and this is kind of when it really opened my eyes, was I want to go, I want to go interview David Mack. As much as it's nice to read reports or hear from other people, you get a better sense of when you can actually sit down with somebody and you can look them in the eye and you can look at their mannerisms and they can put a face with a name. You just get a better full understanding of who that person is. Are they telling the truth? Are they cooperating? Um, and so I was able to track down David Mack at some high level... God, where was it? It was down in Alabama. He was in solitary confinement. Um, and so I went down there and I talked with him. And I knew after probably the first 10 or 15 minutes that, uh, that he wasn't going to wasn't gonna talk to me. He, he wanted to talk. He just didn't want to talk about the stuff that I wanted to talk about. And finally, I remember I said to him, and, and oh, by the way, I had another FBI agent with me who was from the local office right there. Um, but of course, what comes out in the newspaper is is that Chuck says that uh, that I offered to like, get, I don't know what he said exactly, like I was going to, I offered to get David Mack out of prison and clear him and do all this. That's crazy. First of all, I'd never say that. And second of all, I got another agent right there. Um, so that never happened, obviously. So... Once I realized that, um, oh, no worries. that that he wasn't going to necessarily talk about what I wanted to talk about, I finally told him, it's like, all right, I'm done with you then. And then he, it kind of like caught him a little bit. And I said, no, look, if, it's a waste of your time. It's a waste of my time. And so I'm getting up and leaving. He says, oh, no, come on, let's, let's start over. Let's, we're cool with each other. Let's sit down. So I just sat there and I talked to him some more. And uh, he never talked about what I was obviously interested in, but I must have talked to him for, I don't know, an hour or so. And I mean, it was a pleasant conversation. Um, but when that ended, I don't know how long after that, I got a phone call from the city attorney, LA city attorney's office. And it was this guy named Paul Paquette. And uh, he says, hey, he goes, I just was, he goes, I understand that you just uh, uh, met with David Mack. And I'm thinking to myself, well, how do you know? Nobody should know about this. The only people that would know about this is me. I remember uh, Perry and Rob Frank wanted to go and talk to him. And I told him, just hold off for a bit. Um, but then I would brief Burko about what's going on. Now understand, when David Mack got um, arrested and eventually convicted for his bank robbery, LAPD wanted nothing to do with this guy. He was a disgraced officer for doing that. Um, from what I understand, 
Um, he did not get, I mean, because the LAPD union is a pretty powerful union, but he didn't even get representation from the union. They, he was persona non grata. They wanted nothing to do with David Mack. I mean, he was about as disgraced officer as they came. So nobody had talked to David Mack forever. So somehow, why Paul Paquette is calling me from the city attorney's office and aware that I talked to David Mack instantly made me think, like, what, what's going on here? So I said, hey, so what's going on? And he says, well, he goes, I just spoke with David, and David Mack offered to me that he is willing to take an FBI polygraph test. But he's willing to do that only if you're willing to polygraph these four other people. And he gave me the names of these four people. And so... Hello. And so... I, um, I'm looking at these four names, and I know who these four guys are. And first of all, they're not going to submit to a polygraph. And second of all, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to find these guys necessarily. So I told Paul Paquette, Platt, I said, you know what? Let me talk to my bosses and I'll get back to you. So I go and talk to my boss. I said, something doesn't add up here. Um, why, why the city attorney's office is even getting their nose into this when nobody wanted anything to do with David Mack. Um, Suddenly, that David Mack now is offering to take an FBI polygraph, and he wants these other people to be polygraphed. So I conferred with my bosses, and I said, honestly, I said, I, I don't think it's a good idea, and there's something going on with this, and they agreed. So I called Paul Paquette back, and I said, you know what? Appreciate the offer you, from David Mack, but no, we're not interested. Well, come to find out that David Mack never asked to do that. This was all made up by the city attorney's office, and in fact... If you were to get the deposition of Paul Paquette and you were to get the deposition of Rob Frank, who is Perry Sanders' partner, they both even state in their deposition that, uh, that this was all made up by the city attorney's office. And the reason that the city attorney's office made this up was they had felt that if at some point in the future, if I were to ever testify in that civil lawsuit that they had, Mrs. Wallace had against the city of L.A., that they wanted to be able to discredit me and make me look like a, an incompetent agent up on the stand because here this main potential subject of the case is willing to take a polygraph and Phil Carson didn't even, and the FBI didn't even want to do that. 100% made up. And when I found out about that, we called the city attorney's office. We threatened to sue them. And next thing you know, Paul Paquette gets taken off the case. He admitted in a deposition that he made this up, that it was all his idea. And David Mack, in a deposition that Perry Sanders and Rob Frank ended up doing on David Mack, he even admitted that he never said that, that this was all made up by Paul Paquette. So it makes you it makes you stop. And that... that, that kind of finalized my thought and that's what made my bosses realize that hey what Phil's been telling us there's there's some truth to it is everybody has always said from the beginning LAPD's not part or didn't help orchestrate this murder David Mack who fingers were pointing at him that was involved in this murder everybody kept saying he has nothing to do with this murder so my thought was is look 
if anything, you would support every angle of an investigation that looks into David Mack, because if you don't think he's guilty, then, then let this whole investigation prove he's not guilty, and all this stuff goes away. You guys don't have to keep answering all these questions, and that whole theory gets discarded, and you guys are clean of it. But instead, they started looking at the stuff that, that I was investigating, some of the evidence and information I was finding out, and they, that's when they must have come to the conclusion of, hold it, he is onto, onto something here, and so we got to squash this thing. So, next thing you know, they're reaching out to David Mack, who was persona non grata, and now they decide, okay, we got to stop this case from moving forward, so we, let's, let's, let's ruin Phil Carson, let's derail this case, but oh, by the way, with Roger Mora and Steve Sambar on this case, we don't want to ruin two of LAPD's best detectives. And when I say two of the best, these guys are awesome. I would, I would work any case with them. They're the best. So that's why Burko suddenly takes them off the case. And that's when the whole motion of Burko with the city attorney's office and with Chuck Phillips decide, okay, now that we've got our LAPD out of the equation, now we can go after Phil and we can try to shut this case down. And that even goes to show why Luis Lee of the city attorney's office, um, it's funny, I got a call, and I'm not sure if it was originally from Luis Lee, it was, I think it was maybe from somebody else, it might have been from Luis, where they said, when they found out that I was on the witness list, they said, we, we got to have you guys squash this. He goes, I, we need to talk to your bosses. So I'm the one that went to my bosses. I'm the one that set up the meeting. I'm the one that got everybody involved. Because at this point, Josh, this had taken a toll on my marriage. It had, to be honest with you, it had really stressed me out. I had to hire my own law firm out of L.A. that was writing letters to the L.A. Times about these articles. DOJ had assigned attorneys to this. It was it was pretty stressful and very stressful. And I'm like, I don't want to be, I didn't know I was going to be on a witness list. I don't want to be on a witness list. I don't want to testify in this thing. I just want this now to go away and I can go back to just, you know, doing my other cases. So I get everybody lined up and they send Luis Lee over from the city attorney's office who was, I believe, the chief of criminal. Well, I had done previous cases, corruption cases, going after um, corrupt prison guards with Luis Lee. I think the reason that they sent him was is they probably felt that, okay, Phil's got some type of relationship with this guy. This is just my own theory, but um, if you're going to send somebody in to try to smooth things over or try to get the FBI to do what you want to do, why not send somebody that I've worked with? It only makes sense, right? And uh, so Luis Lee showed up, and that's when he said, you guys got to squash this subpoena because if Phil testifies, we got at least a 50-50 chance of losing a $500 million lawsuit. And, uh, and to be honest with you, they're right. They got a, I think it's better than a 50-50 chance. 
So as we say goodbye to Earl Pacinger, another LAPD cop who may have been a good guy. I didn't know him, but one thing I do know is that he had information regarding the killing of Biggie Smalls and did nothing about it, allegedly. So, that's going to wrap it up for today's episode. Let the talk begin. Let the uh, conjecture begin. And I'd love to hear more from you. But for now, that's what I know. What I Know, Martin Productions Production. Copyright 2019. We'll see you next week.